Hey everybody, you're listening to Warm Regards, a dialogue between the climate scientists, newsmakers, journalists, and people on the front lines of climate change. I'm Eric Holthouse here in Tucson, Arizona. For this week's show, we're going to continue what we started last week, a brief interlude into the science of climate change. We are right in the middle of what's very likely to be the hottest year on record, and we've just passed what is historically the planet's warmest week of the year. There's a very good chance that globally average, the Earth hasn't been as warm as it is right now, like right, right now, in a very, very long time. This week's show will examine how we know what we know about our current climate. After all, the Earth is a pretty big place, and to do that, we will rely on the reporting expertise of veteran environmental journalist Andy Revkin. It's great to be with you. And I know that everyone is dying to get straight to the science, so let's get started. Um, Jacqueline is here with us as well from Orono, Maine. I thought you were going to forget me, Eric. (laughs) (laughs) And and yeah, first, so first of all, um, it um, has been already, you know, a crazy year as we are getting used to apparently uh, nowadays. Um, And still, you know, I always try to take a a step back and and see, um, you know, what does it mean to be setting um, globally averaged. Uh, temperature records for 14 or 15 months straight. You know, first of all, we've only really been keeping, quote, reliable records of the global climate for about 135 years or so. How are those uh, records made and how do you like to report on them? Well, I, I think going back, I just want to step back a little bit to how we've learned what's going on in the world on a day to day basis. You know, uh, it's all started with weather, um, and people got the sense of what the temperature was today compared to yesterday, and and then you start to build patterns. And as data accumulates over time, you have patterns emerge that you can test with st- statistics, um, and that gives you this difference between as uh, Marshall Shepard, the uh, down in Georgia, great uh, meteorologist climate scientist who has said, you know, um, weather is your mood and climate is your personality. And and you, to gauge where your personality is today, or to gauge where the the climate system's personality today, what the weather is, um, requires a lot of measurements. And But you also have to have, as we said, the proxy, when we were talking about paleoclimate, you have to have a sense of what's normal. So, so here we are, you know, clearly when you have you're breaking records at the high end over and over again, and you're breaking fewer records at the low end, cool records. And that goes on over a period of time. The statistics then can be used to confirm that the climate's changing. And that's what's happened through this whole IPCC process and other independent assessments for 20 or 30 years have just sort of cemented the reality that the world is warming, um, cemented the reality that with that, there's variability some of it's most of it's internal it's like the system is chaotic and sloshy and um and we keep learning about new levels of sloshiness so you have to be factoring that in and then um but but those patterns are just like so robust um uh, and that that leads to the confidence level you have that things aren't as they used to be um and then you you have these more anecdotal realities like when i wrote my first book on global warming back in 1992 i was writing it in 1991 and I, I lived in Rhode Island. I grew up in Rhode Island, and I look back through historical records, and of course, the Little Ice Age had happened. And lo and behold, in the 1800s, you could cross Narragansett Bay 
right from where I live to the opposite side of Greenwich Bay, on uh, every winter, the coal, the coal wagons used to go across the bay on the ice, you know, and that doesn't happen anymore. And of course, it's ironic that it was wagons (laughs) full of coal. But, uh, but it just tells you, (laughs) I know. So like, and now, uh, you know, when you look um, at some of the things we've talked about recently, the Arctic, uh, that our, uh, that our um, successors will inherit and my children, um, Eric, you, you're a father. Jacqueline, you're not, you're not a mom yet, right? Or are you? Only of a German Shepherd puppy. Oh, there you go. Well, your puppies, <laughs> your, your puppies' puppies will experience a different mane than... And your puppies' different puppies' mane puppies. Than, than, yeah. than your puppies' parents grew up with. And, and you know, that's where we're at. So, so and then the tools have changed. What, what I love, you know, I've been digging at the history of this stuff... Um, the concept of temperature even is not that old. It goes back to Galileo. I, I, I'm doing this book on like um, the history of what we know about weather and climate, like when we learned. And that was right when he was alive. That's right when people started to think about gradients of change called degrees. It's like, we, and now we, you know, now it's so we don't think about anything other than back then it was like humors and things would change to conditions around you. So, so, and satellites have added greatly to our, uh, what we were doing with individual thermometer records scattered here and there. Um, and each one of these systems has um, questions attached to it, too. You think you think that moving from pollen grains to thermometers should clear up most things. But as, as you guys know, for sure, you know, every thermometer is in a place and you can have confounding influences on that heat record there from, you know, urban heat island effect, a lot of cement and concrete and um, but that's been worked through too, you know, scientists, independent groups over and over, look at the data, even this climate curmudgeon, who, Richard Muller at Berkeley, who became kind of, he was a renowned critic of Al Gore and others, you know, he did his own independent assessment of those temperature records. And same thing, you know, he came up with this conclusion um, that the world is warming and there's no way to explain it based on past patterns, and which gets at this next question of um, attribution. Um and, and things that we think of as super accurate that have just, you know, weather satellites are really only about 35 years old or so, um, as long as I've been alive. And um, satellite orbits degrade over time. And there is a tremendous amount of work that is only trying to homogenize these records and make sure that we know whatever it is, whatever the Earth's globally average temperature is, that's not really a physical thing. But it's important as a signal of 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 sub, you know, sub global change. You know, play, how your neighborhood is changing. I mean, that's really what each of us care about in the end. Is how will things that I depend on, or things that my family depends on, or things that that underlie, you know, normal life. How will those things change, and how? Is climate change affecting them, yeah. and and there are so many different ways of of getting to that question. And, and, and it's sorry, and th- but this this gets at these really like important issues like funding um, when there isn't continuity in measurement. So that and this happened in the satellite record. Um, you know, it was an innovation that people even determined how a couple of satellites were already orbiting the Earth that the information they were collecting could be used to give you an average temperature for the troposphere, you know, the, the body of air that we all care about most because it's what we're in. And um, there was some points when, you know, one satellite was up and the other one was 
going down and and that's where you had to do this the continuity work you're talking about spending money to sustain observations of things around the earth is to me really important to keep keep our keep if you can't really know if something's changing in a way that's going to be harmful if you're not carefully measuring it and doing it consistently that's the consistency consistency thing you were talking about it's vital and so whether you're a skeptic or 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 not it should be equally important to know uh, to determine with clarity what's happening and that's why i've never understood some of the contrarian arguments to defund uh, these pro these um, these projects that that no one's going to do you know this is not maintaining the satellite system so that private weather forecasters can use that information there is a part of that that's the public good that that we have to invest in as as, as citizens of this country or planet residents yeah but i i mean you know if you are a, a climate skeptic and you know uncertainty is your friend really you know cuz you can play on well you know we don't know everything about what's happening we're never going to know everything oh yeah that's but there's there's a lot of the more vocal skeptics seem quite certain of their stance yeah. <laughs> and they you know they <laughs> should be true. able to point to data to, to make their their points yeah that's true you know choose choose your favorite um satellite in you know it's in 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 a degrading orbit and then base all your opinions on that yeah that's true what what cracks me up about this too is as, as a scientist is you know clearly the people that are you know, rigorous, like the skeptics that are rigorously attacking the science um, have, have never like, they don't, they don't know any scientists or they don't, um, you know, they've, they've never had a paper reviewed, right? Like I, people in my community that I broadly agree with on anthropogenic global warming um, can be extremely nasty to each other in the review process. Like we love to argue and bicker and, you know, try to you know, outdo each other with our statistical rigor and our statistical machismo. And um, so it just cracks me up. Like, it's like, we, we, we will find the holes in each other's work as anyone who's ever been rejected from 10 journals <laughs> before something finally gets, you know, through would can tell you. And the hardest thing here is when you start to overlap what's known about the climate record. In other words, how much climate's changing, what's driving it with the questions that really matter to society, which are how dangerous is this? You know, what's it going to do to hurt my life or maybe ecosystems I care about? And and then what do you do about it? And that's where this is this as you get into this um, attribution arguments, um, which I think, you know, scientifically, they're really interesting. But sadly, I think we, including the press, pay way too much attention to um, these these sort of close focus questions about um with what part of what hurricane was our our fault versus the, something else but the big issue is there's so many other moving parts to what's going on in the anthropocene at this period that 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 parsing out that climate component is implicitly new science and hard science sure yeah and i try to get around that when i write about weather and climate to just sort of broadly state in any you know when any certain newsworthy weather event happens to say you know th this is how broadly determined uh you know wildfires are changing or this is how you know how more much more likely a certain heat wave is now um without really it, to me it's sort of irrelevant whether some individual uh or, or really a misstatement actually to say a certain event was caused quote caused by climate change because I mean, climate change doesn't cause hurricanes just as much as, you know, like the the bus schedule causes, uh, you know, like, m you know, me to like miss my breakfast or something. I don't know. It's like... You, right, for you to get hit by a bus or something. Yeah. Right. So, so right. Um, 
so it, 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 it's just a, a bad way of talking about it, I think. Um, I think the, the better and, and more relevant thing to say, you know, and I'm, of course, biased because this is my way of, of, of talking about this, is, is that we know a lot about broadly what to expect. And we are seeing some of those things, you know, on average, year, by, year after year happening. Um, we can say that likely you know, some of those things would not have happened in the same way, you know, without um, putting as many greenhouse gases in the atmosphere as we as we have. And knowing that humans are having some role, an undetermined amount, in changing the weather. And, and that's just the, you know, that's the basic point that I like to get across, because that's, I think, the, you know, the nut of, of what people are after when they're asking those questions. So what do you, I mean, what are the kinds of tensions that you, you guys are dealing with? I mean, as a scientist who sometimes talks to the public, who talks to journalists frequently, you know, do you feel the sort of push and pull between, you know, a public who wants a certain kind of message versus scientists who want a certain kind of message uh, versus your editors that want a certain kind of message? I mean, what are, what are the kinds of messaging tensions that you guys are feeling? Oh, this, it's a horror show. Let's put it that way. You know, I've written almost 10 years now. I think the first piece I wrote about what I called the front page thought uh, was, it must have been around 2007, 2008. And this is, um, there's this there's this kind of handoff process where you got this uh, distracted editor in the newsroom. Uh, there's an afternoon front page meeting or for a radio show, you know, it's another kind of meeting where they determine what the mix will be. And there's a convention going on and there's, uh, sadly, another terrorism incident. And then there's a new paper on uh, the effect of global warming amid many other things on, on wildfire. And the editor will say, oh, well, didn't we write about wildfires last year? You know, or whatever. And so the, and then at the same time, the journal, especially the high-impact journals like Science and Nature, PNAS, they put out press releases that sometimes are trying to tell us the front page thought before we, we mm-hmm. the journalists, Get a know chance it, to yeah. read the paper, yeah. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I've seen, unfortunately, sadly, issues where where a, a news release from even the National Science Foundation, I can say, because they I don't have to worry about them funding me, um, has been over really gl- grossly overstated what was in a paper. I don't think it was willful. It's just kind of this process of like whittling things down, and you know, and maybe some science pushed back, scientists pushed back, but maybe it didn't even go back to the scientists for for vetting, and so then that gets gets to the reporter who's got to convince the editor that this is really important and you end up with this sort of amplification of things. And then that can cause what I call whiplash, you know, journalistic whiplash, where the, a week later you, you, people are seeing a study that goes in the other direction. It's kind of, it's really a tough situation in the, in the journalist end of things. And the web makes it even worse. Yeah, the, no, so as someone who writes mostly for the web, um, I've, I've, I probably actually shouldn't say this, but I'm going to anyway, because this is my podcast. Um, uh, I have found myself, you know, flagging the attention of a distracted editor by saying like, this is a super, super important, um, thing that has just come out. Like they just found that, you know, like, you know, you know, people are causing category five hurricanes or something like crazy that I would never write in the actual story just to get their attention. And then, you know, write the story the way I think is responsibly the way to write it. Um, once the story is approved, <laughs> because um, it's just sort of to circumvent that process. Like it is still ultimately the reporter's 
responsibility to report the science accurately or in the best way that 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 they they know how i think um and you know headline writers will assign often you know a somewhat misleading headline you know but um when you read the text as a as a responsible science journalist you should get uh, as close as possible to a responsible full picture so how Um, how does that make you feel jacqueline (laughs) (laughs) well uh i don't know i it's it, it reflects you know my my experience that there, there's just a whole, you know, this, this, um, you know, we all have audiences, we all have goals. Um, I, I, I think sometimes we, we forget that, you know, even journalists have a, you know, there's this idea of journalistic objectivity, but even journalists, you know, have to pitch a story or, or frame a story so that they have readership and they get clicks or, you know, sell subscriptions. And, and, and I think that, um, I think that it's it's hard. I, I don't know how you navigate that, right, in terms of the communication angle um, between the people that you have to serve and then the people that you, I mean, you serve so many audiences. And I think it's, I think people don't generally think about it quite that way unless they've been, you know, in, in a journalist or a scientist whose work was reported or an editor or something like that. One thing I've, I've really been kind of coddled, you know, when I created Dot Earth in 2007 and it's my own little playground and party. And, you know, I kind of like do what I want. My editors have never, maybe they should have pressured me more to be more dramatic and stuff. But, I, you know, my, when even when I moved to the opinion section, what I said in 2010, after I left the news staff was my opinion is that reality matters. I'm, I mean, I'm like a reality <laughs> junkie. And, 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 you know, come, you're such a rebel, Andy. I know. Well, I know. Believe me, you know, look at the media landscape these days and you realize you, that. I mean, you actually are. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a total maverick thing to even think about. Mm-hmm. But and it makes me. Um, but like even on wildfires, you know, I've been working a lot on. I did a piece recently and I'm doing more on. The, it's a very interesting issue where what what matters to me, you know, in terms of what people should be thinking about the average person is, well, how hard do you work on global warming? And at the same time, how hard do you work to reduce vulnerability to hazards the climate system can throw at us? And those are two very different questions. And the one, reducing emissions of greenhouse gases is on a very, very, it's a century scale, time scale. You know, it's going to take generations for that to happen. But the vulnerability is here and now. But it's not vulnerability to climate change. It's a vulnerability to climate hazard. And you look at like, I, I can't tell you how many studies on wildlands and fire cut against, um, well, well, I shouldn't even, I'm not even going to cast it the way, point to, point to things that are no-brainers that should happen now that don't even cost money, that are just changes in behavior like building a house differently or clearing the shrubs around your house that aren't happening. And with or without climate change, the West is like going to burn and, and it should burn. That's the other thing about the West that's, mm-hmm. People forget it's a historic. It needs to. Yeah, I like as an ecologist standpoint. Yeah, there are scientists who told me that if you go back, if you were here, if you were in the West, five hundred years ago, it would be way more smoky and polluted than it is now because there was fire was a much more normal part of the regime everywhere. And uh, like here's a study. Uh, you know, we keep hearing about beetle uh, beetle deaths on trees, but um, two different studies in the last two years. Um, here's one. Area burned in the western U.S. is unaffected by recent mountain pine beetle outbreaks. Standing dead trees actually are less flammable because they don't have the needles on them. Yeah, 
Yeah, and when I was interviewing uh, um, some some firefighters and people working on on wildfire in the West um, in run, the run up to this season, was that after a relatively normal rainy season in California, we had an El Nino. It wasn't you know a blowout rainy season by any means, but we had a, a decent El Nino and it rained you know a decent amount, and that built up the sort of understory and. They were much more. I feel like they were much more worried about that. Is that when when that when those gra- grasses and shrubs die out, um, in, in some ways the rain um, was worse um, during a drought than than it would have been because those are ladder fuels that will then burn burn the trees more easily. So, um, so yeah. It, again, you know, these are all. It's much 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 more difficult than just saying, you know, climate change will create bigger wildfires you know that's a a blanket statement that is doesn't have the appropriate context and just a a quick jump for you know the paleo record i think that the the charcoal record can can and tree tree scar records can tell you quite a bit about the just the natural variability in fire and the kinds of climate changes that are associated with changes in fire and in places you know like the west it might be different and the fire return intervals might be quite different than places like the northeast where you know summer drought, you know, or spring drought can actually cause a lot of wildfires before things green up versus in the Midwest where the, you know, at some points it becomes so dry that there's no fire, so hot and dry that there's no fire because there's nothing alive to burn. And so it's, you know, it's a really complicated story. That's one thing we've learned from the paleo record that fuel and ignition are complicated when it comes to fire and climate and humans all interact with those things. And that's why at the local level, if you're living in a fire-prone area and you're not paying attention to those specifics as they relate to your community, you're um, in deep doo-doo. So, so just to wrap up, then you know, yeah, this is great. Um, forest fire is a is a perfect example, in my opinion, of the complexity of figuring out uh, what humans are doing to the climate and uh, the vulnerabilities that 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 exist because of climate. And those are two totally separate questions. So, um, so just to, just to, just to do a real quick rundown, then, for example, we know that as a result uh, of climate change, it's much more than just, you know, rising temperatures, um, like we talked about at the beginning. Um, You know, there's melting glaciers, sea level rise, ocean acidification, drier droughts, more intense rainstorms, shifting range of, you know, um, there's a lot of things happening here. But to to go from those physical changes to the climate system to changes in vulnerability and changes in risk is a totally different question. And I think that what is what you have done so well in your career, Andy, is to talk about that. Uh, Well, I'm appreciative of yeah and it's like that's the real time it's such a real-time imperative i I just over and over again Mm -hmm. from sub-saharan africa to to the hills north of los angeles there the vulnerability reduction that isn't happening that can happen is is a keystone of of limiting climate regrets great (laughs) i mean not great but so uh yeah so that's our show um and we um thank you as always for listening Uh, If you're not subscribed, for whatever reason, please do it now (laughs) on SoundCloud, iTunes, and, you know, a dozen of of whatever you you cool kids are, you know, apping with these days. (laughs) Okay. uh, Yeah. Thanks, everybody. This is is Warm Regards. Uh, Thanks for listening. Bye.